You're listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. Um, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 16 through 21 as we consider, as we continue our, our study in 2 Peter. Uh, the title today is, What is Truth and How Do I Know It's Truth? And uh, before we get into that, though, we're going to pray. It was interesting, first service, literally as soon as I walked on the stage, I lost my voice. And so it was a battle through first service. Um, Seems that I have my voice back. So praise God for that. So let's pray because there's some spiritual warfare going on. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here and truly that freedom we have. Lord, we thank you for those families who today may be, may be grieving a little bit. We thank you for them, and we pray, Father, that you would bring peace and comfort to them, that you would encourage them, Father, as they have a, lo- a loved one that is lost. So, Lord, minister to them. But as we're here this morning, Lord, because of the freedom that we have to worship you and to gather, Father, would you speak to us individually? You know where each person in this room is. So, Lord, would you speak to us individually? Meet us at that point of need and that point of knowledge, that point of understanding. Lord, speak to us as a church body, corporately. God, how we can be most effective and engage in this time that you have us here on this planet. And, Lord, I even pray that you would speak to me and through me and bring correction and direction in my life. And, Lord, most importantly, we pray that you would draw anybody who doesn't know you into relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you're standing in line at the grocery store, you're getting ready to check out, you kind of look to the left and the right, and you've got, of course, candy bars, right? And gum and all sorts of things. Uh, but you also have these amazing magazines, these tabloids, right? How many of you uh, buy the tabloids to learn what truth is happening in the world today? None of you. I mean, if you do, that's okay, we'll talk later. Um, but how can you resist in buying those magazines with headlines like alien mummy goes on rampage or woman gives birth to two-year-old baby walking and talking in three days or vegan vampire attacks trees better yet Eve was a space alien oh it's all true right no no how do you know that these stories are not true though well, the reality is they don't fit into human history. They're, they're not normal human experiences, nor are they verifiable. So we all deal with what is true versus what is not true. You know, things we heard about a few years ago by a certain president, fake news, fake news. A few years ago, there was a survey asking about absolute truth. Is there such a thing as absolute truth? Only 28% of the people said yes. 
But what's more disturbing is that only 23% in that survey who claim to be Christians believe there's such a thing as absolute truth. That means that more than 75% who claim to be a Christian say there is no absolute truth. If that's the case, then what do we do with the claims of Christ in God's word? Claims that are pretty absolute. People have increasingly come to the point of saying, how can anyone claim to have the truth? They would say, after all, we we have our own values. We have our own life experience. The ironic thing is that, well, that, that same group of people will state, there is no such thing as absolute truth, which in itself is a contradiction. How can you absolutely say that there's no absolute truth? I'm just saying. We're in the subject now of epistemology. It's an area of study that deals with truth. How do we know if something is true? Well, the first way we know is that it didn't come from the media or the government. I'm just kidding. What is the theory of knowledge? And what is justifiable belief? What is truth? Pilate even inquired that of Jesus. What is truth? It requires us to seek and obtain knowledge. It requires us to validate Facts And in validating those facts, it produces knowledge. The Bible makes truth claims, and some of these claims are absolute. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Absolute truth. It's not received very well in our world today, is it? But how can you know it's really true? How can you know if the message that we received is really, really true? Peter addresses it in our passage today, and we're going to look at our main text. It's 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we do not follow cleverly designed, devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But I know first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, to remember as we're going through this study in Peter, that persecution is happening to these people, and it's bad. It's at an all-time high. Christians are losing their jobs. They're being arrested. Families are being separated. They're being brutally murdered. Some are being beheaded. Others are being impaled and lit on fire. Peter's writing this at the end of his life to a group of believers that are in a desperate situation. And there are things that he wants them to know. Remember, know or knowledge 
appears as a key word in Second Peter 16 different times, a few times in the last couple of weeks as we were teaching Second Peter 1-2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Or Second Peter 1-5, now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. In 2 Peter 1.8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To know, to have knowledge of. As we move forward, we're going to see certain things as he addresses them. We're going to see false prophets and teachers uh, that come into the church. That's what, that's what happens as we engage into like next week's lesson. Many different kinds of false prophets and teachers. Gnostics being one of them. They were people in the know. They claimed to know things that others did not. They had a special knowledge. In this, they denied the claims of Christ, the coming of Christ. These false teachers brought fables into the church, and they denied the truth. Peter responds to the false teaching by proclaiming three things. I know this is true because what I have seen I know this is true because what I have heard, and I know this is true because what I have read in God's word. There's three lines of evidence that he gives, and we're going to put it into two categories. One is personal experience. The other is scriptural evidence. Personal experience matched with scriptural evidences. Personal experience, well, that's subjective. That's what I experienced personally, Correct? Scriptural evidence, well, that's objective. That's outside of my domain of experience. Both of these are addressed by Peter. So how do we know the truth? First, by personal experience. Verses 16 through 18 to Second Peter. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by him in majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on that holy mountain. So the word tales or fables, it can be translated myths. In the Greek, it's muthos or myth. When that word is used in the New Testament, it's it's a derogatory term or a negative. It's usually in reference to pagan mythology. If you've studied Greek history, you would know that these myths are, well, they're really, really strange in all honesty. They're bizarre, they're ridiculous even, without any historical context, without any true meaningful significance. Maybe you've heard of Prometheus. He gave fire as a gift to mankind, and Zeus found out about it and was jealous, and he had Prometheus chained to a rock in the Adriatic Sea and had vultures peck out his liver. Or Pandora. It's not a place that you get a nice bracelet. Pandora, who opened up her little box, that vessel, and all the evils in the world jumped out. Medusa, who originally had golden hair and fell in love with Poseidon, so Athena cursed her, and where her hair once grew golden and long, snakes came out, and whenever people looked into her eyes, they were turned to stone. These are non-historical fables. These are myths. 
But see, as we pick up God's Word, as we pick up the Bible and we read the stories in the Bible, they're actually based on historical places. They're based on real people. Specifics are often given. That means that these become verifiable events. Peter appeals to personal experience. First of all, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I saw this with my own eyes, he said. He's referring to the transfiguration of Jesus on the holy mountain. One of the highlights of Peter's life, Jesus transformed before his very eyes. And you can find that story in Matthew 17 or Mark 9 or Luke 9 as well, if you want to read it later. In that experience, Peter saw the face of Jesus glowing like the sun and his garments were dazzling white. And then two men from the past showed up, Moses and Elijah. They were having a conversation with Jesus. And here's Peter. Peter was overwhelmed by what he saw. And you know what happens whenever Peter gets overwhelmed? It wasn't good because Peter would start talking. Peter said this. He had, he had this profound statement. Are you ready? There's Jesus and Moses and Elijah and, and all that glory. And he says, it's good that we're here. Okay, Peter. Then Peter said, let us build three portable temples for you. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. And as those words were still hanging in his mouth, God the Father interrupted him saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Pay attention to what he's saying. Can you imagine how cool that would be? Hanging out with Jesus. Peter was an eyewitness. In a court of law, an eyewitness is crucial. It's there that they're asked, what did you see? Then cross-examination comes. How do you know that's exactly what you saw? Peter said, I was there. I saw this. And what I saw was a preview of coming things. Peter saw a preview of the second coming. Notice that he says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The word coming in the New Testament is almost always referred to in the second coming of Christ. It's literally the arrival or the actual presence of Jesus. And Jesus made his disciples a promise in Matthew 16. There are some of you who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the coming of the glory of God. To which they probably would have replied, what are you talking about? They didn't understand. They didn't know until just a few days later. And then an experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter saw Jesus in his resurrected glory, a preview of the second coming power and glory. That's what we're watching for now. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We want to see that. When Jesus does come back again in Revelation 19, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. After that, uh, the this, this new city, the heavenly Jerusalem, comes down uh, out of heaven towards earth. Do you remember how it's described? In Revelation 21, 23, it says, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it. And its lamp is the lamb. So Peter's statement was personal. I was there. I, I saw the preview of those coming attractions. I, I saw that on the holy mountain. I know it's true because I personally saw it. 
There are those who had a personal supernatural encounter with God that maybe we know. Some who say that they've seen Jesus. Others maybe who picked up a hitchhiker that happened to be an angel. We can't dispute their claim. We weren't there. And by the way, we have to remember, it's more than seeing the face of Jesus on a tortilla. You know, there's a shrine in New Mexico and the tortilla's there. Don't waste your time unless you're taking beans. There are many stories out of other countries where Christianity is banned or looked down on or severely restricted. Stories of, of Jesus showing himself. And I, I truly believe that every person will have a chance to make a choice whether or not to serve Christ. They'll have a choice to follow him or dismiss him. And there are hundreds of testimonies of Muslims who have had Jesus appear to them in a dream and they surrendered their lives to him because of that dream. They were a witness of that. They are the only ones that saw it. Years ago, we did a, a church plant in Antigua and I had the, the opportunity to preventine for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God did this twice in Jesus' ministry once at his baptism and once at the Mount of Transfiguration. He says then that they heard a voice, heard a voice clearly. Can you imagine what the voice of God would sound like? I don't know. Imagine it's thundering, it's authoritative. What he saw had a sound, God's voice. Some would say he was crazy, but it wasn't just Peter that heard the voice, James and John were there. All three of them together saw the same thing, heard the same thing at the same time. Why is that important? Because people who are unknowing will accuse New Testament writers of hallucinations. Oh, you hear voices, do you? Oh, you see visions, do you? Oh, you were so predisposed to this, you just thought you saw the resurrection. You thought you saw a vision. But that defies everything we know today about hallucinations. The experts in the field will say that individuals can have a hallucination. Groups cannot. If a group sees the same thing and hears the same thing, then it's no longer classified as a hallucination. Isn't it interesting how God does things in order? There's three witnesses to what is happening. God is a God of order. There's something happening that needs to be accounted for. So Peter is saying, I, along with my two friends, and we were eyewitnesses to this glorious apparition. It was a trailer to the real event. This is the second coming. It's something that we saw. It's something that we heard. Have you ever paused and thought about what it would have been like to be a disciple? Just to hang out with Jesus? Just to be able to walk with him? living with him for three plus years, watching him, hearing him. Now it's starting to dawn on you who, who this guy is that you're following around. At first it was like, he's this rabbi that said some really cool things, had some good stories. But now he's walking on water. He's raising dead people. He's doing miracles. You're astonished at who you're following. 
John wrote about that in 1 John 1, 1 through 2. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life that was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We are eyewitnesses. We saw his works. We heard his words. We saw withered limbs healed. Dead people got up. We heard the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon in the Upper Room. We heard parables. We heard his words. We saw his works. We have a personal experience with him. The only problem with personal experience is that, well, personal. It's only between them. They're subjective. They're your own. And somebody could say, well, that's your experience with truth. My personal experience with truth is far different than yours. You say you've seen and you say you've heard and you know. And people see and hear and know things all the time. Experience itself is not valid. And that would be true. Well, let's pretend for a minute here that, let's say Mike. Mike had a word for us. He came up to the platform Ladies and gentlemen, I have a message for you. I have smeared rotten bananas all over my head. And my life is changed. I now have peace. I have joy. I have love in my heart. I can talk like a monkey now. I have been changed. What's your first thought? He's bananas. The first question we should ask, well, are there any others throughout history who have also smeared rotten bananas on their head and their lives were changed and they had peace and love and joy and now talk like a monkey? If we can find throughout history this constant stream of individuals who have had the same experience and give the same testimony, well, then there might be something to it. We might want to invest in bananas for the next couple of years, but perhaps not. Perhaps this is just an isolated case. You see, so we look at the disciples of Jesus and we look through church history and we see a common experience of people inviting Christ into their lives. And in that process, we see lives that are drastically changed. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. They truly have experienced peace, joy, and love. All of the disciples were radically changed. One of the strongest evidences for the gospel is that, that all but John uh, of the apostles, uh, John and, and Judas, went to a martyr's death. They died because of what they testified, about what they saw, and what they heard. 
they believed what they saw. They believed in Jesus. They were all in. Personally, that brings me a great deal of comfort, especially as we read God's word. Those guys were willing to die for Jesus, for their faith. So next we have by uh, scriptural evidence, that's how we know truth. Peter says, this is what we saw, this is what we heard, this is what we know, our lives are changed, but he doesn't end with that. If you were to use that, and this is what we saw and heard, and, that, and this is our experience without evidence, then it wouldn't go very far, it might even look foolish. Peter knows this, so he adds the evidence. Verses 19 through 21, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see what he's doing here? They haven't seen what he has seen. He's writing this letter to them. They don't have the same experience. So now he's going to beef it up a little bit. They have scripture. The Bible brings confirmation Wednesday night at the conference uh, this week, there was an apologist and uh, he approached the stars and the universe as proof that God exists and that the Big Bang Theory is just that, it's a theory, that there's no way it could have happened that way. And he proves it and he takes us through, he took us through scripture and, and it was just awesome to see the, the beauty, because the telescopes we have now are amazing, the beauty of creation beyond our little world that we see evidence in the very creation that we live in. Peter says, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I know it's true because of what I've seen. I know it's true because of what I've heard, and I know it's true because of what I've read. There's scriptural evidence. The Bible is confirming we have the prophetic word confirmed he he said the king james says we have a more sure word of prophecy i know it's true because i've seen and heard but i really know it's true and i'm more certain than ever even more certain than my own personal experiences because of what the bible says the bible predicts the second coming of christ so if you don't believe me read your bible as you read the Bible, you find case after case after case of fulfilled prophecy. When you have a book where, where you find a prediction that uh, God's people would be in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and then it happened. The same book, it predicted that these people eventually be in a 70-year captivity in Babylon, and it happened. You have prophecy after prophecy, over 300 prophecies about Jesus, about the Messiah that are fulfilled well, what do you do with this book then? It's not just another holy book. It is the written word of God. In Isaiah 45, it's predicted that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed a hundred years before it actually happened. In the same chapter, in Isaiah 45, it's predicted that Cyrus the king would rebuild the temple before Cyrus was ever born. He wasn't even, even a twinkle in his daddy's eye. He wouldn't come for the, on the scene for another 160 years years but his name was written by the prophet Isaiah 
Yet today in America, four out of 10 Americans believe that the Bible was written in its entirety decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is not true. And we can prove it through biblical texts and, and historical texts. But they actually believe it was written decades after his death and resurrection. What those four out of 10 Americans need to do is to do a good study in fulfilled Bible prophecy and they would see it all unfold. I have not met somebody personally who has honestly considered the evidence that is in scripture and rejected it. You know, we've had those conversations with people before. Well, have you read God's word? Well, yeah, I've read the Bible. Yeah, it's not for me. Hmm, I don't think you did. C.S. Lewis did, right? He studied it so hard to disprove it, he became a Christian. Did they really read it? Some will say, oh, there's many books that purport to be the word of God. And you're right, there are about two dozen plus books right now in the world that claim to be God's very word. And out of those 20 plus books, they lack one thing, fulfilled prophecy. The Bible has that. A few years ago, the National Enquirer, speaking of tabloids, putting out an interesting article. Now, I found this. I didn't actually buy the magazine, so... It was called Modern Day Prophets. They asked movie stars and sport figures and politicians to make predictions of what would happen, not in six or 60 years, but what would happen in the next six months. And that's pretty safe. Give us a prediction of what will happen in the next six months. They made 61 predictions total. How many do you think they got right? 50%? Third? Lots of zeros going up. Big cup of nope. Zero. None. None of them. Not a single prediction they got right. Now, Peter will admit that experience is not valid by itself, but when you combine it with Scripture, now it's objective and it's verifiable. I know what I saw, I know what I heard, but I also know what I read. And that what I saw and what I heard what was predicted by the prophets. So the Bible is confirming. He also wants you to know that the Bible is enlightening. Verse 19, so we have a prophetic word made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a, a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. How many of you watch the news every day? Good job. I was going to tell you to stop it. The news is never a positive thing, is it? In the last few years especially have been trying and, and outright disturbing attack after attack and school shootings and church shootings and viruses. I was sitting in Pam's room a couple days ago and on one of the channels that we were watching, six stories in a row, on how monkeypox is the next pandemic. Nope, it's not. War in Ukraine, cancer's running rampant. People are fearful, people are shaken. We need to know that some of these events 
Likewise, we're happening at this time that Peter is writing to the audience. He's saying, you live in such a dark world, but you have a light. Caleb said when we were in worship, as we were praying, but God. All these other things are happening, but God. God is on the throne. Doesn't matter who's in Washington. Doesn't matter who's in downtown Denver in the capital. But God. Peter writes in his audience and says, you're living in this dark world, but you have a light. You have a lantern, a flashlight. Yes, you're shaken, but you're not shaken like people who don't understand faith in God. We know what the Bible predicts is coming. We all know it's going to be heavy. We'd like to escape it. But we have a dependable light in this dark world. Scripture says in Psalms 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. That's what we need. His word. When Jesus began his ministry, the prophet Isaiah was quoted in Matthew, Matthew 4, 16. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. In Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Peter says, pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place till the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What he's speaking of until the day dawns is he's speaking about the second coming of Christ. One day Jesus will come, and when he comes, all spiritual darkness, all social darkness and political darkness and and the moral darkness that we're battling will give away to a bright day. That's what we're looking for, for his return and that light to shine and to drive all that darkness away. Morning star, the Greek word is phosphorus. It was a technical term for the planet Venus, which was that bright light right before dawn. You can tell the dawn of the day was about to begin when you would see that planet, when you see that star. We can do that today still, right? Look to the heavens and you'll see it. The Bible is unerring. Besides confirming and enlightening, The Bible has no errors. Peter writes in uh, verses 20 and 21, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is one of the two most important New Testament verses on divine inspiration the other is 2 Timothy 3.16 anybody know what that one is all scripture is inspired by God profitable for teaching and reproof for correction for training in righteousness and then verse 17 so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work how much of the Bible is good for us all of it you mean the Old Testament too Ah, so Genesis through Revelation is for us to grow, to learn, to engage in. Everything from Genesis to Revelation teaches us and points us towards Christ, points us to the cross. 
Scripture is God-breathed. Our text says that they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And if we look at the word interpretation in verse 21, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It's an unfortunate translation because when you read it, it makes you think of the understanding of the Bible. I'm reading what is written and I have an interpretation of that. I have an understanding of what is written. It's unfortunate because then cults will grab a hold of this and they come along and say, well, you can't really understand that. We're going to tell you what it says. We're, we're in leadership. We're, we're in the know. We're going to tell you what it means. So the word in our text, interpretation, though, in the Greek language refers to the origin. That's why the New, New Living Translation puts it this way. No prophecy ever came from the prophets themselves. What is the origin of God's word? It's directed by God through the Holy Spirit. Speaking about the origin of the text. So David, Paul, or Peter, they weren't just sitting around talking to themselves. You know, I kind of like to write about this. Maybe I'll write about that. I, I got an idea. Maybe I'll do that. It, it didn't originate from them, though God used them. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's a sailing term of, of sails going up and the ship being carried along where the wind determines it to go. So the biblical authors hoisted their sails and the spirit breathed of, of God, the spirit breath of God filled those sails and carried them to their destination, the destination that God wanted them to go to. Using the individual style of the author and the personality of the author. And you notice Genesis through Revelation, they all tie together. They all fit together very well, and they all point us to the cross. That's why John writes different than Paul. You and I can notice those differences. But the destination that's written was under control of the Holy Spirit. It's important because if you try to explain inspiration to a person, we say, well, the Bible was inspired. What you don't mean is it was a mechanical inspiration. It's not like Paul is just sitting in the quarter and God is saying, okay, now take this down as I dictate it to you. That would be mechanical inspiration. I don't believe that. Nor do I believe it's what we call concept inspiration, that God just kind of gave them the general concepts, the general idea. Like Paul, I'll, I'll give you the general idea, Paul, about love. And so then Paul says, you know, I'm going to write my own thoughts on love. And, and he wrote 1 Corinthians 13. That's concept inspiration. Nor is it subjective you can argue that with anyone, but you're not going to get very far if you just have divine text, but you've never experienced what God's word says personally. But the same thing, it'll fall short. But when we put them both together, well, then we're living the truth that we're reading, and that really sets the truth on fire. That truth then becomes even stronger because you're reading it, you're seeing where it is, you're experiencing it, you're applying it, and you're living it. I'm going to close out with this. H.P. Barker said, I was looking out my window, and I looked at the garden. I saw three things. First, I saw a butterfly, and it was beautiful. It would land on this flower and flutter to another and another, only for a second or two. Then it would move on. It would touch as many blossoms as it could, but derived absolutely no benefit from it. 
Second, as I was watching, a botanist came into the garden. The botanist, he had a big notebook and a magnifying glass. The botanist would lean over in a certain flower and he'd look for a long time and he'd write in his notebook and he was there for hours writing notes and then he closed them and he stuck it under his arm and tucked his magnifying glass in his pocket and he walked away. Third thing I noticed was a bee. Just a little bee. But that bee would stop at this flower and would sink down deep into the flower and extract the nectar and the pollen, all, all that it could. It went in empty every time, but it came out full. The author then asks the question, which are you? When it comes to scripture, which are you? Are you the butterfly? You, you flip from this Bible study to that Bible study, from this church to that church. I've asked people what church you go to, and they're like, oh, I go to all of them. I go a little here and a little there, and I like the kind where there's just a big pep talk, and I can smile a lot when I leave. The lighter, the better. You know, we have uh, Calvary Chapel roadies. <laughs> I've met a lot of them that they don't have a home church. They have a bucket list. They want to go to every Calvary Chapel in America. And we've had several of them come through. We're just on the little checklist. Even I even get uh, Facebook requests, and as I look into their profile, they only have Calvary Chapel pastors as friends, which is interesting. I mean, I guess you could have worse friends, but... Or you like the botanist. You're in a deep study, and you want to take all these notes, and you get out the magnifying glass, and you search, and, and you dig in, you get into the original stuff and you take even more notes and, and then when you leave, you, you, you close the, the notebook and forget what you just wrote as you walk away. Or are you like the bee? You go in empty and you come out full. It's fuel for your life. It's pollen for your existence. God's word is nourishment for your soul truth that you live by see the cool thing about that is you get to decide you get to decide which one you want to be you get to make that choice how much do you want to get out of this it's how much time you spend in it amen let's pray father we thank you for the words of peter this fisherman whose life was changed he knew what it was to have an eyewitness testimony. His eyewitness testimony was the same as that of others who saw the transfiguration and like the other apostles who lived and heard and saw the life of the Lord Jesus. It was their personal witness. But he also realized that the eyewitness testimony by itself was just personal experience. But when they matched up with the objective truth of prophetic scripture, it became very powerful and compelling. It could, convince, it could convince any thinking person that there's more to this Jesus than him just being some guy who existed and did some good things and said some good things. He's far more than that. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us hunger to dig deep. Lord, stir in our hearts.
not just to dig deep, but to understand the truth and, and to understand and, and relate to the God of truth in that living relationship, that love relationship with you, the living God. So Father, stir in our hearts and strengthen us in that relationship with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God. You can take care of that right now. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means that every single one of us has failed to make it. But because of Jesus, because Jesus came to the earth, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins and mine. Because he did that, he went to the grave. He rose again and is in heaven. Because of that action, we have the opportunity to repent and believe. It's simply asking for forgiveness of your sins and believing that Jesus died on the cross for you and rose again. That's the simplicity of salvation. All you have to do is have a, a simple conversation with God, your heart to his heart. So with every eye closed and every head bowed, if that's you this morning, you'd say, I don't have that relationship with God and I need it. I'm gonna ask you to say this prayer. Whether you're in this room or you're listening online, say, Father God, I know I'm a sinner. I pray that you would forgive me. I turn from those things that I used to do and I turn to you. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross and you rose again from the dead and I commit my life to you because you have given your life for me. pray that you would help me help me to be that bee and to dig in deep and, and to, to go in empty and come out full when I'm in your word help me to follow your truth and to live for you in Jesus name Amen if you said that prayer in this room I'd love to chat with you after service if you said it online just reach out you can email me scott at foothills calvary Org, and I'll get back to you. This has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.